If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to look to the book of Luke, chapter 23, and I'm going to ask you to read as, uh, with me as I read aloud, beginning at verse 13. I can't help but uh, remember a story about uh, three little boys who were talking one day, and, and the ushers bringing in the offering kind of reminded me of this. And one little boy was bragging about his daddy, how his daddy made a lot of money. And the other two said, what does your daddy do? He said, well, my daddy's a lawyer. And he goes into the courtroom, and he talks for about 30 minutes, and he gets paid $5,000. The other little boy thought, man, that's pretty good. The next little boy said, that's not anything. So my daddy's a surgeon. He goes in, and he does surgery, and he gets $10,000. The third little boy was kind of puzzled because he didn't know what he was going to say. He said, well, fellas, my dad is a preacher, and all I can say is it takes six men to bring in the money when he preaches. (laughs) So there you go. There you go. I noticed there were six, six went out and only four came back. Must have been a light offering today. I don't know. I'll be reading today from the Christian Standard Bible, which is uh, the revised version of the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and it's a wonderful translation. If you're in the market for a Bible, I recommend it to you. If not, why well, I wouldn't necessarily say to get rid of your old Bible to use this, but it's a good translation, and I'll be reading from verse 13 of Luke 24. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, well, I turned two pages. Hold on just a second. That's the bad thing about getting old, isn't it? While they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened here, there in these days? What things, he asked. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. 
They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. And they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, it's our desire to have a worship experience today where we bow before you and where we give to you our allegiance, where we pledge to you our commitments, our love, our devotion. And Lord, where we hear from you and receive your word, your message for our life for this day. Lord, let it be so for everyone who has come here today seeking an experience of worship with you. And we pray that you'll let your word speak to us as we consider these things. We pray this, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage of scripture has intrigued me for quite some time, and I have preached on it before, but one of the things about this text that is so intriguing to me is that we really don't know who these two men were. Now, I know the Bible says that one of them's name was Cleopas, but we don't have any record anywhere else in Scripture of a disciple of Jesus named Cleopas. We have one named Clopas, but that's not the same. And so what we have are two men going together to a place called Emmaus. But another interesting fact about this Scripture text is we don't really know where Emmaus is or was. I know there are some towns in that general vicinity west of Jerusalem that may claim to have been Emmaus, and archaeologists have certainly done a lot of digs on those ancient places, but we're still not sure to this day exactly which one of those ancient mounds was actually the village of Emmaus. So we have two unknown men going to an unknown place, and on the way there, they meet up with a stranger, and they don't know who he is for quite some time. Two men going somewhere that we don't know about with a stranger that they don't know. And after all, this is the first Easter Sunday. Now, what I want you to see in this text is that these men had some wrong expectations. They had some ideas that were not necessarily true to the facts. They were looking for a Messiah, but they weren't looking for the Messiah that actually was. They were looking for one who really wasn't. If you have your bulletin this morning, on the back side of it is a little outline of my message and I've given some blanks you can fill in if, if that's helpful to you. I've learned over the years that when people hear something, they'll remember some of it, but not much. But if they hear it and write it down, they'll remember a lot more of it. So I encourage you, if you do take notes, to make some marks that will help you remember whatever it is that God may be seeing to you today. These two disciples had some expectations, but they were looking for a different kind of salvation than what Jesus offered. What were they looking for? Well, their expectations of Messiah was that a Messiah would be a military leader. He would be somebody that would restore the financial resources that Israel had once known under kings like David and Solomon. They were looking for someone who could command an army and raise an army, and who could fight off the Romans and get rid of the Romans so Israel could once again be a free nation, decide their own destiny, control their own borders. And these were the things that people had in mind when they wanted the Messiah to come. And these guys were two examples of men who followed Jesus. And this is what they were looking for Jesus to do. They were more interested in the here and now 
than in the here and forever. They had an assumption that because they were Jews, they were safe with God forever. And you know, there are a lot of people today who are like that. A lot of people say, well, God, I want you to help me now. I don't want to wait till the sweet by and by with apple pie in the sky. I want help today. And a lot of preachers on our television stations and radio stations are happy to preach that kind of a gospel. We call that the health and wealth gospel. I don't know if you've heard of that or not. It's also known as the word of faith gospel. And the basic premise of what some of these preachers are saying is, God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants to give you all kinds of stuff in this world, and all the emphasis is on the here and now. Of course, the wealthy road starts with sending an offering to that particular preacher. You know how that goes. And the Jewish people were kind of like that in a way. They wanted a kingdom on earth. They wanted everything to be done here and now instead of God's promises for everlasting life that has far more blessing and benefit than any of us can even imagine. And so their expectations were wrong. So what are your expectations of God? Do you want a religion, a Christianity, a relationship with God where he promises you all the blessings you want, answering all your prayers, making sure you're always happy, you're never too cold, never too hot, everything goes just sweet and swell? If that's your expectation, you're not looking at biblical Christianity. You see, when God calls you to come with Christ, he doesn't promise you you won't have problems. He doesn't promise he's going to erase all your problems. But he does promise you to give you grace to live in those problems and to prevail over those problems. And sometimes those problems may even take you out of this world. But where is it going to take you except to the Lord himself for everlasting life? Number three in that same section, if you follow along in the sermon notes, they wanted physical salvation for the Jews and not eternal salvation for everyone. Now, don't forget, if you've been around Sunday school or you've been around the church much or you're familiar with the Bible, you know that it was never God's plan for the Jewish people to be an inclusivistic group of people who didn't want to reach out to everyone, but that's what they became. God's plan was to make them a kingdom of priests. God's plan was to make the Jewish people missionaries to go to the rest of the world and tell the world about God and educate the world about God. They didn't do it that way. They looked upon everybody who wasn't Jewish as a Gentile dog. And so they weren't trying to spread the news that everybody could know about God. They were trying to make themselves satisfied, and they wouldn't even allow Gentiles to be fully accepted into the Jewish religion. And so they had some expectations that were really actually wrong interpretations of Scripture, almost like a cult of today that takes a little bit of Scripture and misappropriates it, misapplies it, misinterprets it, and makes a whole new religion that may sound like Christianity but isn't real Christianity. Now the second thing we see in this text about these two men is that they were very selective in what Scriptures they believed. Now, you know there are some times when you have people coming to your door. They may be Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they may be from some other cult group. And if you give them a little bit of time, they can show you and prove to you, according to their Bible and their interpretations, how they're right and you're wrong. But notice how they're very selective in the Scriptures they choose. Notice how they have some private interpretations of those scriptures. And in fact, in, in the light of one call for Jehovah's Witnesses, they have even translated the Bible differently so they can prove their points. It's called the New World Translation. 
Well, these Jewish people had kind of done that with Jesus. Notice what it says in the text leading up to where we see Jesus teaching them. They said, we had thought that this man was going to be the Messiah who was going to deliver us. But instead, he was handed over to the Jews who crucified him. You see, they believed the Messiah was going to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel and not necessarily the savior of all mankind. And that's exactly what the 12 disciples had in mind as well. In Acts 1-6, where the disciples meeting with Jesus on the, Mount of Trans- on the Mount where he was going to ascend back into heaven, these guys were there waiting and Jesus was about to ascend back to the Father. And they said, Jesus, when are you going to bring about the kingdom? When are you going to establish your throne in Jerusalem? When are you going to raise up an army? And it says in Acts 1-6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? And you remember when the mother of James and John came to Jesus and said, I've got a favor to ask you, Jesus. Will you let one of my sons sit on your right side and the other sit on your left side when you come into your kingdom? She was thinking, they were thinking, he's going to establish an earthly kingdom where he will rule and he will reign. And they selected scriptures to give that kind of proof. But they overlooked a lot of other scriptures. They loved the kingship passages, but ignored the suffering servant passages like Isaiah 53. Like people today, we want the promises and blessings, but not the commands and responsibilities. Now imagine if the truth was told, every one of you in here would say, I do want to go to heaven when I die. But how many are ready to get on the bus today to go there? You know, we kind of have our religion as a side issue, don't we? I mean, we have our Christianity, but it's not the main thing of our life. It's just the hope of last resort. I mean, if everything else fails, well, then I'll call on God. And what sometimes people have in mind is, well, I want to be saved, but I want to live my life. And so I hope that I live a long, prosperous, healthy, healthy and happy life here and now. And then when I get real old and can't do anything else, maybe I'll die in my sleep and go on to heaven. The only problem with that is not biblical. God doesn't promise that to any of us. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what does the Bible really teach? So when they begged Jesus to join them on the road and and they began to tell Jesus what they thought, look at his response in verse 21 of the text. He says, you foolish people, you have expected something that's not realistic. And so he began with the prophets and the writings and he went all through the scriptures and explained to them the promises concerning himself. And many of those promises that you've studied, especially when it comes to Christmas time, and we talk about the prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, we come to Easter time, we talk about the prophecies of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They had completely skipped over the parts that didn't see Jesus in shining armor. Let me give you some thoughts about what Jesus may have said to them. How would you like to have been in Jesus' class with those guys? The road to Emmaus, the Bible says, was about seven miles long. We don't know exactly when Jesus joined them. Let's just say he joined them at about the two-mile marker. And let's say perhaps for the next five miles. Now, how many miles can you walk in an hour? I know if you do an aerobic pace, that's a pretty good little pace of walking. You can do about two miles in 30 minutes. That's a pretty good little pace. Let's just say they did half that. So maybe they're walking at a leisurely pace, and so about two miles an hour. And so for maybe two and a half hours or so, Jesus kept teaching them from the Old Testament. Perhaps he started 
with Genesis 3.15. You know that verse, Genesis 3.15? In the first chapter of Genesis, we see the creation story. In the second chapter of Genesis, we have another telling of the creation story, plus we see the creation of man a little more detailed. And God said in Genesis 2.17 to Adam, he said, Adam, the day you eat from this fruit of this tree, this one tree you're not allowed to eat from, the day you eat from this fruit, you'll die. And in chapter 3, what do we see but Adam and Eve eating from that tree? There may have been a lot of years between chapter 2 and chapter 3. We don't know how long it was. The Bible seems to make it like, you know, this day and the next day. But perhaps there was some time uh, in between where they didn't eat from the tree. But the day they came and ate from the tree that was forbidden, instantly they felt guilty for the first time in their lives. Instantly they were fearful of God. They tried to hide themselves and cover themselves and it didn't work. So God confronted Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and he began to explain what would happen now that they had sinned. They didn't physically die, but they spiritually died. And in chapter 3, verse 15, God put a curse on the snake. And the curse was that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. You got that? The seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Oh, the serpent would bite his heel, and that would cause pain, but the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And Jesus, in essence, said to those guys, I'm the seed of that woman. And through my death on the cross, and now through my resurrection, I have crushed the serpent. He has no more power over death or hell or sin, and everyone who comes to me will have forgiveness and everlasting life. Maybe he went on to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we see how the people of God, the Hebrews, have become slaves in Egypt. And there in Egypt, they've been calling out to God for deliverance, had become slaves, and their life was misery, and it wasn't at all like it had been at the first. And so God hears their cries and sends Moses to them. And Moses becomes the deliverer, rather reluctantly, we might say. For the first 40 years of his life, he was a prince in Egypt. For the second 40 years of his life, he was running from justice, became a shepherd on the backside of the desert. And when God appeared to him in the burning bush, God said, Moses, you're the one that I've chosen to go back to Egypt and deliver my children. So ultimately, Moses, along with his brother Aaron, go back and confront Pharaoh time and time again. In fact, as you may remember from your Bible school days, there were 10 plagues that God put upon the Egyptians. And one by one, as they became more severe, the Pharaoh may have some intentions of relenting and letting the people go, but ultimately he said, no, you cannot go. Until finally the tenth plague. Do you remember what the tenth plague was? It was the plague of the Passover. And God told Moses to explain to the people, on this day, have every household to prepare themselves a lamb, a year-old lamb that's without blemish. And they're to kill that lamb and take some of the blood from that lamb and put it on the doorpost on either side of the door into their house and on the lintel across the door. And tonight, the death angel is going to pass through Egypt, and as he passes through and he sees the blood, he's going to let that family live. But wherever he does not see the blood, the firstborn of that family is going to die tonight. And so here's the truth. God is saying, through the blood of the Lamb, you're going to be saved. You're going to be rescued. You're going to be freed from this slavery. And sure enough, that was the plague 
that let the Egyptians say to the Hebrews, get out of our sight. We've had enough of you. We want you to get far away from us. And sure enough, Moses led them across the Red Sea on dry ground and led them on out to meet with God. And as Jesus reminded them of this account in Exodus, he was saying, in essence, I'm the lamb. I am the lamb that was slain. It was me who gave his life so that you may be freed and forgiven from the slavery of sin and the death sentence of sin. And those men's eyes must have gotten real big to recognize that interpretation of the cross. And then going on, he might have said, well, now, when they got out in the desert at Mount Sinai, Father took, them up, took Moses up on the mountain, and there he laid out before him an elaborate plan of how the people were to live. And so Moses came down the mountain and gave the people the rules and the laws and all the different things God had told him. And the bulk of those laws had to do with making offerings. Offerings for sin, offerings for guilt, offerings of thanksgiving, all kinds of offerings. And you know what the offerings basically were? It was sacrifice of animals to appease God and to receive forgiveness of sins. And there were times the animal was to be a goat or a sheep or a bull. There were times when there was a little calf involved or a lamb involved. You could even at times bring a pigeon or a turtle dove. There were grain offerings and drink offerings. But the point was something had to be given as payment so that sins could be covered. And Jesus told these two Emmaus Road disciples, that's me. That was all a picture of me coming into the world to be the Savior of the people. He might have gone on and said, you remember that time when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness? Some of you may be familiar with this text in John chapter 3. Everybody knows John 3.16, right? But just about three verses before John 3.16, Jesus said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever looks to him will be saved. Now, here's what he was referring to. Back in the book of Numbers... When the Hebrews are traveling through the wilderness, the people had rebelled against God in a particular way that God's just upset with them. And so as a way of punishment and as a way of bringing them to repentance, God sent poisonous snakes into the Israelite camp. And the people were being bitten by the snakes. The bite itself was very painful. And if they didn't get the bite fixed some way, people were dying So they began to call out to Moses, Moses, save us, help us, go to God and get some solution. So Moses did. He went to the tent of meeting, he prayed before God, and God said, here's what you do, Moses, go get some bronze and fashion this bronze into a serpent and put the serpent on the end of a stick and hold it way up in the sky and tell the people, if you'll come look to the snake, you'll live. Just look at it. You don't have to make an offering. You don't have to pray to it. Just come and look at the snake and you'll live. And many people did. And they lived. And their bites healed. Some of the people wouldn't do that. And they died in great pain. And Jesus said in John 3, 16, Even as God lifted up the snake, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said, I'm the serpent lifted up on the snake. 
Jesus went through the scriptures explaining to these two men how the Old Testament was all about him. We see Jesus on every page of the Old Testament, not necessarily in every verse or even every chapter, but throughout the Old Testament, God is teaching us about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here were these two men beginning to understand, and later they said, weren't our hearts burning within us? And here's what happened. Jesus was an invited guest, but he wound up becoming the host to those two men. Do you see that in the scripture? He was invited to join them on the journey. But as he walked along with him, he began to be the host, explaining to them the scriptures. And then they said to him, uh, don't, don't just keep on going. He made like he was going to keep on going when they reached Emmaus. They said, no, no, it's getting dark. You don't want to travel while it's dark. Come on in our house. Stay with us. They were so enlightened. They were so blessed. They wanted more of what Jesus had to offer. And notice what happened when they got inside. The Bible says as they reclined at the table... He, Jesus, took the bread, and he, Jesus, gave thanks for it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, indicating that the guest had indeed become the host. Now, I want you to think about your life for just a minute. Is Jesus a guest in your life, or is he the host of your life? Is Jesus really in charge of you? Do you seek his will day and night for decisions, for how you should live, for all kinds of things? Do you really trust him with your job? Do you really trust him with your finances? Do you really trust him with how you raise your children or minister to your grandchildren or how you live in this civil society that we live in? You see, for a lot of people who claim to be Christians, Jesus is not the host. He's not the Lord. He's a guest. How do you treat a guest when they come into your house? I've been a guest at a lot of people's houses. You know, as a pastor, I've visited in a lot of homes. And somebody say, Pastor, come on in, just make yourself at home. Now, I know they mean well, but that's really not what they mean. And they usually show me where to sit. Oh, would you like something to drink? Oh, would you like to watch the television? I've learned that when you become a guest in somebody's house, they're going to tell you where to sit. They're going to tell you what to do. In fact, they may even have an agenda. Now, if you go into somebody's house and you really make yourself at home, what do you do? You sit where you want to sit. And you may pull off your shoes and lay them in the floor. You may want to lay on the floor. You know, we have three sons. Some of you know that. And our oldest son lives downtown and Sometimes he comes over to our house in Mount Pleasant. You know what one of the first things is he does when he gets there? He looks in the refrigerator. Some of your kids do that too. And uh, it's not that he's hungry. I don't know why. He just wants to see what's in there, I guess. And he might find something he wants to eat and snack on. He doesn't say, Mom, Dad, can I have this? He doesn't ask. He's at home at our house. When I come into a home and somebody has invited me in and say, Pastor, just... Do whatever you want to do. Make yourself at home. I don't dare go looking in the fridge. <laughs> I don't want to embarrass myself or my host. And, and some of you treat Jesus like that. Jesus, I want you into my life so when I die and go to heaven. But I don't want you telling me how to make decisions. I don't necessarily want to follow your code of conduct. I don't necessarily want to follow the guidelines that you set forth in your word. 
I just want to make sure you're with me so when I die, if I die young or if I die late, but whenever that is, you're going to take me to heaven. My sins are going to be forgiven. That's when you think Jesus is your guest. But let me tell you something. If he's just your guest, he probably will never be your host. And you may not make it to heaven with Jesus as a guest. With Jesus as a guest, it's almost like having a lucky rabbit's foot, right? But what good does that do the rabbit? It won't do you any good either, if that's all Jesus is to you. If you just give him a head nod, oh yeah, Jesus, and you just give him a little tip when you come to church, and you just do enough Christianity so your conscience won't be too bad, I won't cut it. Jesus wants to be the host in your life, and that only happens when you yield your life to him. And truly become saved by inviting him to come in and take charge and live his life through you. It doesn't happen automatically. You don't inherit that from your parents or your grandparents. You have to make that commitment to him yourself. And then notice the third thing if you've got your notes open. Not only were these guys looking at the wrong things and they were asking the wrong questions, but when Jesus came... He showed them a picture of salvation and the Christian life. Now, where is this picture of salvation and the Christian life? It's in the breaking of bread and the sharing of bread. Where does that come from? Does it remind you of the Lord's Supper? It should. That's, that's a reminder. I don't really think they were serving the Lord's Supper here because there was no wine, just the bread. But it goes all the way back to John chapter 6, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And after feeding the 5,000, as he teaches the people about different things, one of his teachings is Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats the bread that I give him shall never be hungry again. And this idea of bread, you know, bread in the ancient world was called the staff of life. And it was the major staple. It wasn't the kind of bread that we usually eat here today because we've so refined and and change the kind of flour we use for bread that it, it's not truly called anymore the bread of life or the staff of life. But Jesus knew that in every household, the main meal every day consisted of bread and oil. Some kind of a cake, maybe baked with oil mixed into it, maybe some honey at times. And so he said, if you really want to have eternal life, you have to eat this spiritual bread that I'm going to give you. And so the real transformation comes when you ask Jesus to come into your life and take control of your life so that you can live life for his glory and for his honor and not just for yourself along the way. Now when these two men recognized that it was Jesus, the Bible says they got up and said, wow, it was Jesus. We didn't even know it. Weren't our hearts burning along the way? And the Bible says within the hour they had turned around to go back to Jerusalem. Here's the conclusion. Here's the biggie. You got a couple of words to fill in the blanks. When they were headed toward Emmaus, they were walking west. Though we don't know where Emmaus was, the scripture indicates it was in the west. They were going toward sunset. Now, there is a sense in which all of us are going toward sunset. We're going toward the end of our physical days. I look out around here this morning and at least half of this crowd is as old as me or maybe close to my age and, you know, within 30, 40, or 50 years, we're going to be dead if Jesus doesn't come back soon. Some of you may not have that long. I'm not, I'm not putting a curse on you now. I'm just making an educated guess. 
But you know, if you're a Christian, that sunset isn't bad. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And so they were going towards sunset. They were going toward a dead end. They were going to a non-sequitur. They were going to a place where nothing could happen that was good. Their Messiah's hopes had died. They didn't know what they were going to do next. But once they encountered Jesus, they turned around and started walking toward a new dawn or a sunrise. And I'm looking forward to a sunrise, aren't you? I'm looking forward to a place, to a day, to a time when it'll never be night again. When this body of ours will never go old, where we will have no pains or sorrows, there will be no sickness or death. A place where the Lord himself dwells and we will see God and see him face to face and he will know us even as we are known and we will be perfected, the Bible says, the glorification of our bodies, our minds, our spirits will be completed And we will have forever and ever and ever in the most blissful, beautiful, wondrous life that anybody could ever imagine. That's what Jesus did. He set them on that road to the sunrise. Is that the road you're on today? You know, sometimes people look for that magic day when they retire. That magic day when they get their kids out of college and get a raise. That magic time when the house is paid off. That magic time when they're going to take this wonderful trip, whatever it may be. But when those things are done, what's left? You see, if those are the only things you're living for, you're headed toward a sunset. There's no glory in that. There's nothing beyond that to to be hoped for except dying. But when Jesus is in control, when he's the host, sunrise is on the horizon. And we're headed toward that time where we'll be with him forever and ever. Bow with me for a moment of prayer, if you will. I don't know your spiritual status, but I would estimate that a number of you, most of you perhaps, are born-again people. There was a day, there was a time when you trusted Jesus Christ to come into your life, to forgive your sins, to give you everlasting life. And as best you know, it was real. If I would say to you today, when you die... Where are you going to be? You'd say, I'm going to be in heaven with Jesus. But let me ask you this, dear brother, dear sister. If that day was today, would you go to heaven with Jesus as your host in all the areas of your life? Is he really in control of your business? Is he really in control of your conduct, your thought life? Or do you have something else in there that kind of calls the shots? I urge you now to surrender it to him, whatever it is that's being held back. And then maybe some of you are here today as a a guest, or maybe you come here regularly, but you've never had the assurance that Jesus was alive in you. You may have joined the church and been baptized. You may be a really good person as far as human goodness. But you'd have to admit, I've never invited Christ to come in to save me and forgive me. And give himself to me that I might live for him. Why not do that today? We're not talking about joining the church as good as that is. We're not talking about getting baptized as good as that is. We're talking about a spiritual transaction. Where you say in all sincerity and honesty, Lord Jesus, I'm tired of living life the way I live it. Please come into my life and change me and forgive me. 
I give my life to you. Will you do that today? Some of you did that years ago, but you've kind of kind of let the world slip in there a few places and you've been living just for you and now it's time maybe for a renewal a revival God is still there he hasn't left you he hasn't run away he's waiting for you to open the closet door and let him come out to take control whatever your status is today get in touch with God right now and ask him to do in your life what needs to be done Father, I pray today for this congregation, for those who have heard this message, that your Holy Spirit will work in us to change us and mold us into the image of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.